press freedom faces some of its biggest challenges from democracies today. What is the message from the Nobel Peace Prize for Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov? Hello and welcome to Worldview this week. We do have an interview with Maria Ressa to discuss where journalism is headed in the age of authoritarianism, big tech, COVID and terrorism. But first, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the US-based organizations, in the past 30 years, at least 1,400 journalists have been killed in retaliation for their work. Another 500 murdered without a very clear reason or motive being imputed, so presumably for journalistic reasons. While that number has been on the decline for the last few years, what is perhaps more frightening is that the numbers of those dying in conflict zones, uh, is in fact in non-conflict zones, has become much more than those dying in conflict zones. Uh, so those countries, including democracies, add up to 70% of journalists' killings in the last 30 years. Uh, more than 25% of those journalists died in just three countries, Iraq, Syria, and the Philippines. And India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Russia are in the list of top 10 countries where journalists have been killed. The organization Reporters Without Borders actually estimates that three-fourths, 75% of all countries in the world have very bad problematic situations for press freedom. So when the Nobel Peace Prize was announced by the committee this year, the committee made it a point to say that the award was for two journalists, but it was also meant for the broader issue of press freedom. So just to read from the citation, Ms. Ressa and Mr. Muratov are receiving the Peace Prize for their courageous fight for freedom and expression of expression in the Philippines and Russia. At the same time, they are representatives of all journalists who stand up for this ideal in a world in which democracy and freedom of the press face increasingly adverse conditions. Now, Mr. Muratov in Russia runs the Novaya Gazeta, an independent publication that has seen six of its journalists already killed, including one called Anna Politkovskaya, who wrote investigative articles on the war in Chechnya that clearly rubbed the establishment the wrong way. Maria Ressa belongs to the Philippines, where she founded Rappler.com in 2012. And she criticized the government, basically the government of uh, Rodrigo Duterte, for fake drug encounters, clampdown on press freedoms, and has already faced a number of cases, uh, along with Rappler.com, for libel, cybercrime, and other reasons. And she was even arrested in 2019. Maria Ressa, thanks so much for joining us here at Worldview at the Hindu, and congratulations on your award. Thanks for having me, and big hugs. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I do want to say, of course, that it is not since 1936 that the Nobel Peace Prize went out uh, to a journalist. And at that time, the journalist in question was fighting or writing about the then Nazi regime in Germany and the remilitarization plan. Uh, of the of the government at the time. So what do you think the Nobel Peace Prize for two journalists in 2021, what is the message from that? Uh, that it is that kind of moment, you know, that it is an existential moment where uh, what happened after 1936, you had World War II, right? And I use that analogy all the time because I, I always say that our information ecosystem, it's like an ad bomb exploded there. And we need to come together with uh, globally and find a solution, much like the world did after World War II, 
Um, they created the UN, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, right? These values, because I gotta say, I keep asking for text values beyond making money. You know, it would be great to move beyond, move fast, break things, actually taking, you know, the, the role of being the gatekeeper to the public sphere seriously, because certainly journalists have. But the other part I will say is that what a, you know, this, this is for all journalists. I feel like I'm just a placeholder for exactly every journalist around the world who has found it so hard to just do our jobs. You and I worked together. We were both much younger, you know, and, and I long for the old days, but but it, we're not there. The world has changed. And I keep thinking, you know, that maybe something better will come out of this, that this creative destruction will lead us to a place that is better than where we came from. Right. And, you know, when we're looking at those statistics, as you pointed out, the kind of dangers that are uh, two journalists seem to be coming from non-conflict zones. It's not just journalists being killed yes. in the crossfire. They're being killed uh, in countries, many of them which are democracies, uh, many of them that are facing authoritarian regimes that call themselves democracies, uh, in a sense. And we all know Philippines and India are on the list of top 10 in that regard, where journalists have died. Um, but there are also, you know, journalists, as you said, who are not facing maybe... Uh, you know, a threat of killings, but are facing other kinds of threat uh, from these growing authoritarian regimes. Now, there have been many theories, uh, um, in a sense, of why these populist regimes have done so well, have been able to capture the public, but at the same time, uh, sort of promote this uh, suspicion of journalism, if you like, uh, protection in the economy, anti-immigration, xenophobia, uh, a sense that foreign policy is actually about uh, domestic policy. These are all common themes. What do you think really led to the rise of this? Technology. I mean, look, they were always there, right? I mean, let's go back. Hitler, Stalin were elected democratically and used a lot of those same, same arguments to actually perpetuate such violence. But look at today, and, and I go back to when journalists lost our gatekeeping powers to tech. And I would say the first the first time globally where we saw uh, different realities and then an impact the world is the Ukraine in 2014. The election of Modi uh, in India in 2014 and the use of social media, you know, that certainly, you know, that certainly led to, uh, to kind of the erosion of trust, right? Because when you're being manipulated and insidiously manipulated by these cheap armies on social media, you begin to distrust everything. And, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the role of Russian information operations. That is part of the military doctrine. And so I feel like this has now gone global. It has. Um, just this year, Oxford University's computational propaganda research project said that these cheap armies on social media are rolling back democracy in 81 countries around the world. It's going to get more. And I think the hard part is that it manipulates our biology. It exploits the weaknesses of our biology. So in strange way, it actually tells us that as human beings, we have a lot more in common because the very same platforms are using these algorithmic manipulation in order to change what we think, uh, change how we feel. Right? So, so think about it like this, right? Uh, e. Wilson. 
Uh, he's an American biologist who, who studied emergent behavior in ants. And he said that the greatest crisis we're facing is our paleolithic emotions, our medieval institutions, and our godlike technology. The technology is godlike because it's turned the delivery platforms for new social media, American social media companies, into behavior modification systems. And with a lack of accountability, we've become Pavlov's dog in these real-time experiments that has brought significant money to these platforms, something that Shana Zuboff called surveillance capitalism. So it is a business model that takes our data and uses it to manipulate us if you click yes or no, if you read something, all of that are data points that machine learning takes and creates a model of you that knows you better than yourself. You know, getting to a world, I think, with this kind of data where you have to ask where this manipulation ends and free will begins. Has already stepped over free will? Do we have free will? I know, sorry, not to be philosophical, but, you know, it is that dangerous, I think. Sure, because it, it cuts at, at basic, you know, it, as you said, it's a biological experiment as much. But, you know, there is the counter to that, that social media, big tech, the Facebooks, the Twitters, all the other platforms have democratized expression. Uh, what about freedom of expression when you say, I, as a journalist, have a right to speak but not big tech. Why is it, and I know that you're on the real Facebook oversight committee as well. Um, why is it that big tech has, has become what is seen as what you are describing as an agent for authoritarianism and not an agent for the people's right to know? So at the beginning, and I would say, you know, 2011, how the Arab spring became the Arab winter. At the beginning, it was empowering. But then what wound up happening is that these governments realized they could exploit those weaknesses of micro-targeting, those weaknesses of what was used for marketing, what was used by, it was asymmetrical power, right, which went to the Arab Spring. And then when did it become the Arab winter? It was when, when these governments then began to use them, manipulate those tools. So... I think that the platforms, Mark Zuckerberg certainly says this all the time, this is a freedom of speech issue. It is. It is a freedom. I'm going to quote a comedian who, who talked in his speech to the Anti-Defamation League, Sacha Baron Cohen, said that this is a freedom of reach issue. We're talking about algorithmic amplification, algorithmic distribution. And studies now have shown us that lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts, right? So if the platforms are biased against facts, then they're biased against journalists. Because again, if the end goal at all costs is to keep you scrolling, then it's like, you know, uh, it's like you're using principles that, that, that are mildly addictive to gambling, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Taking away anything that will stop you from scrolling I think the question for the platforms is going to be, you know, how much money is enough and how much how much will you manipulate? Because you just go down, you go into Facebook, you get a mild lift because of dopamine, oxytocin. There's a biological reaction. And then the way the A-B testing has shifted, something simple like, you know, you grow your networks by using an algorithm powered by friends of friends. Because you grow your network, the platform grows, right? But friends of friends divide society. 
right? So like in the Philippines, when we have friends of friends, we never argued about the facts before 2016. Regardless of what political view you have, we were in the center. We agreed on the facts. But after the election of President Duterte in 2016, if you're pro-Duterte and you can substitute pro-Trump here as well, you know, you move further right. If you're anti-Duterte, you move further left. And that's 2017, 2018, 2019, right? So what wound up happening is you were torn apart the shared reality. And then here's the other part that's dangerous to teenagers. You know, this is the whistleblower, um, Francis, um, the most recent one, right? He just said that the company had documents that showed they would make um, choices for profit over safety of users. Well, teenagers on Instagram. Those very same algorithms that are bad for teenagers are the same ones that also have made the platform worse for journalists. Um, Anyway, yeah, so it's not a freedom of speech issue. It is an amplification issue. Also, the other part of what the Nobel Committee chair said, Barrett Rice Anderson, you know, she said they've been thinking the last few years about freedom of expression. And inherent in freedom of expression is the idea that you should be able to speak. This is for everyone, not just journalists. You should be able to speak your truth, speak what you think without fear of retribution. Right. Information operations on social media made that impossible. You know, it's almost like these strongman leaders brought out the worst of human nature and have given permission to people to behave in ways that would have been unthinkable before. In fact, it is particularly this rise of what are called alpha men or strong men in so many countries of the world. Uh, that seems to have been a global trend in a sense, uh, because as I said, they've come to power on the same kind of platforms. And once they're in power, uh, what seems to uh, distinguish these strong men is the crackdowns on uh, protest, crackdowns on NGOs, uh, limiting access to journalists. Uh, you've, of course, faced this in the Philippines, and it will be familiar to our viewers in, in so many parts of the world. Uh, and some of the biggest democracies in the world, the US, India, have seen the outcome of these very, very super popular leaders uh, then being translated into a kind of arrogation of rights of citizens. Um, what was your, uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, own journey. And uh, leading up to an arrest in 2019, and how you dealt with it? I mean, so first, let me take some of the stats from the Philippines, right? Like the President Duterte was democratically elected, but like many of these digital authoritarians, uh, once he was president, he then took the levers of power and caved it in from within. And the ex, you know examples that we have are you know how many at least nineteen journalists killed during his administration, at least sixty three lawyers, uh, uh, human rights activists killed. It's like over four hundred human rights activists. One human rights group, Karapatan, has had sixteen people killed. You know, and extremely bloody uh, drug war. And the first battle for truth was you know exactly how many people have died in our drug war because you talk to the police, they'll say, oh, maybe like 5,000, 8,000 max. They'll say, because we watch them roll the number back in plain view and human rights activists will say it's in the first three years, it was at least 27,000 people killed. No one knows the fact, right? Um, what happened to us was in 2016, we we lived on social media. 
you know, we found them, uh, four, four of us who were all about the same age. Uh, we were four or five of us, about 40, and then we hired the smartest 20-somethings we could find, 12 people in Rappler in, 20, in 2012. And in 2016, we began to see really alarming signs, you know, the kinds of chilling effect on anyone who questioned the drug war, the killings there, they were pounded. And that's just any normal person on Facebook at that point. And then we we came out and challenged the government on two fronts. The drug war death toll count that they kept rolling back in case. It was 7,000 in 20, January 2017. And then somehow it got rolled back to 2,000 plus because they atomized it. They said, oh, it's only this much. The rest are kind of like, they're not really, we don't know who they are because they're masked. Anyway, sorry, I won't dive into it. So. So that's the first thing was we exposed the information operations. We showed our people the data to show how they were being manipulated online. And, you know, I wrote two of the three part series, Weaponizing the Internet. And that the title of the second one was um, how Facebook algorithms impact democracy. The third one was a manufactured reality and how 26 fake accounts can reach up to 3 million others. Right. So these are. Anyway, so I didn't expect to get arrested. I didn't get, I didn't expect 10 arrest warrants in less than two years. You know, that's an insane. I mean, from the time when we were reporting together, right? I couldn't have imagined it, but it was what it was. And all I did was, I suppose, you know, the way we coped as a news organization was for every step. At the beginning, it was just simple because I thought they were just intimidating us. And we just old enough to know who we were, why we were doing what we're doing. And we just kept doing what we were doing. And then when I started getting arrested, you know, I got to tell you, like coming off of a 14 hour flight and getting arrested, you know, not, not so much fun. But then I just thought, OK, what's the worst case? What can happen? How do I prepare for this? Things that. We kind of went through when we're going into conflict reporting, but right. you don't ever expect that, you know, you you can go to jail. Like the minute you accept it, it, it's easier. And then you prepare for it. And that's kind of, so I got used to thinking, what is the worst case scenario so that I, I could still my heart? And then the other part is the four of us, the co-founders of Rappler. And we have this pact. Only one of the three of us can be afraid at any time. We have to rotate the fear. Well, those are very, very important uh, points to ponder. And as you pointed out, this is not just about Maria Ressa and Dmitry Muratov. It is about journalism, democracy, all of these questions uh, around the world. Uh, certainly in the world of foreign policy, it isn't often we, we get to talk about these issues as well. But when you're dealing with global threats, uh, perhaps that too is important. But Maria Ressa, thanks so much for joining us on Worldview. Uh, if you've been watching from the team here, thanks for watching.